So it's a great pleasure to welcome Daniel Dennett to Contemporary Philosophy Global Conversations. Um, this show is brought to you by the MANA platform. MANA is the Saudi platform for culture and philosophy. Um, my name is John Simmons. I'm professor of philosophy at the University of Kansas. Our guest, Daniel Dennett, is one of the world's greatest philosophers. Daniel Dennett has been a towering figure in recent philosophy since, I guess, since the 80s, since the 70s. Um, I've followed Dan's work very carefully over the years. Um, he's, uh, he's been an enormous influence on, on my own thought. Um, his primary contributions have been to articulate, broadly speaking, a naturalist worldview that attempts to reconcile our kind of common sense understanding of the nature of mind, the nature of consciousness, meaning, value, ethical decision-making, the place of religion in human life. He hopes to reconcile all these things within a broadly naturalistic perspective. Um, Dan Dennett is author of numerous important books and, you know, central and seminal articles in, in, uh, in the history of recent philosophy. Um, he's currently professor at uh, Tufts University, where he has been for most of his career. I'm, I'm extraordinarily grateful, Dan, to, to talk with you today, and I, I'm eager to just hear you speak. So I'll be quiet now and ask you maybe to begin by telling us about this broad project that you have. So sometimes you say that it's, it's, um, it's ever since your dissertation with, um, yes. you could tell us about your dissertation, that you've been engaged in broadly the same project over the entire more span of your 50, career. For more than 50 years. Um, uh, it, all, it all started when I was a graduate student at Oxford talking with some of my fellow graduate students, and we were talking about that strange thing where, where, your, where your hand goes to sleep, you rely on your hand wrong, and you've got this dead hand, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't feel, and you can sort of flop it around, and what the heck is this all about? And I said, well, let, I don't know exactly. It must be the nerves being compressed. And, and, and I began thinking about it in, in physiological, anatomical terms. And they looked at me as if, what was I doing? I mean, this is a philosophical question. And I thought, no, 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 I, we can't just sit here in our armchairs and answer it philosophically. There, may, there are philosophical questions here, but the way to answer them is, first of all, to find out the state of science at the time. And that was really a turning point for me right there in graduate school. I hadn't been really interested in science uh, much as an undergraduate, uh, but I became a, an autodidact in brain science. They didn't even call it neuroscience back then. And uh, that's how it started. And the, and the overarching uh, question is the one that Wilfred Sellers, great late American philosopher articulated. He said, the, the goal of philosophy is to uh, explain how things in the broadest sense of the word hang together in the broadest sense of the term. And 
That's right, because think of all the things there are. There's uh, electrons and atoms and molecules and nerve cells on the one hand, but there's smiles and ideas and dreams and hopes and, uh, and poems and music. How do, how do we get from, from the things of our everyday world, the things we see and interact with, the tables and chairs and sounds and sunsets, to the scientific image? And I now see my goal over all these years as trying to answer Wilfred Seller's question. Mm. How do things hang together? What's right. the relationship between consciousness and your brain? What's the relationship between ethical values and uh, the evolution of society? Uh, all of these have been uh, tackled in the course of my work. Dan, when I think about, I mean, it's a, it's, it's beautiful the way you put it together and, um, and the Salarzian point is, is, um, is really enlightening here. When I think of your, when I think of the arc of your, your overall work, I think of your two teachers, I think, or two broad, two big figures in your, in your career. One of course is Quine and the other is Ryle. So, when you're at Oxford, the influence of Ryle is maybe this, one of the sort of important poles, right? So Ryle, Gilbert Ryle was a great ordinary language philosopher. And in many ways, I see over the course of your career, Ryle's influence repeatedly playing, playing out. Um, your view of the intentional stance, et cetera, has a very deeply Rylean element to that, your relationship your sort of critical relationship to behaviorism, your way of kind of arguing uh, for rethinking certain concepts in ways that admit of empirical treatment is often, I think, deeply influenced by ordinary language philosophy. Um, on the other side, though, there's Quine. And Quine has this very large scale naturalist vision that, um, that also informs your work in, in fundamental ways. So maybe you could talk about how you, in the early days, moved between those two poles in your own thinking. So maybe that case of the of falling asleep on your arm is a good way to to, to think about those two figures. In well, your uh, wasn't I lucky? I had two of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century as my undergraduate and graduate advisors. Well, not Quine wasn't my advisor, but I wrote my honors dissertation at Harvard uh, was an attack on Quine. And when I went to Oxford, I figured I was the, the Quine skeptic to end all Quine skeptics. And I was immediately labeled by my fellow graduate students as the village Quinean. Mm -hmm. I accepted so much more of what Quine thought than they did. So mm -hmm. I en ended up appreciating him more from seeing all the points of his that they didn't get, which I thought were deeply important. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, you're right. Quine had a wonderful systematic attempt at naturalism. Uh, one of the things I learned from both of them is neither one of them ever wrote a boring sentence. They were both very good writers. And I have always aspired to write as clearly and vividly as Ryle and Quine write. Mm 
uh, and I, I think I've, I've succeeded. It's certainly been a, a major part of my, of my thinking. Uh, the, the big point of disagreement is that Quine, as a logician, wanted to regiment ordinary language and tame it and turn it into a proper scientific language. And Ryle, who was uh, allergic to science, <laughs> uh, wanted to protect ordinary language. And I wanted to split the difference. I wanted to show how you can go back and forth between ordinary language, what Wilfred Sellers calls the manifest image, and the scientific image. And the stumbling blocks for this project are well known, and the, probably one of the great ones is intentionality, aboutness. How does the world of science treat the aboutness of an idea, the aboutness of a perception? And right from the beginning, when I was in Oxford, I was worried about how can a brain learn things? How can a brain acquire information? It's just matter. It's just matter. And Good. I gradually came to realize there's only one way. And it's got to be a sort of Darwinian evolutionary way. The brain has to have lots of candidate connections to draw and something must prune those connections so that the right things get attached to the right things so that the creature can learn. What learning is, is redesign, automatic. Uh, it's self-redesign. You take the design you've got to begin with, and you use that to improve your design by taking information from the world. And that's very much like the way evolution works. Species, uh, every, every member of every species is an experiment in the world. It's, it's living its life and trying to make more of its kind. And the ones that are most successful succeed. They make more of their kind. And the ones that are more successful happen to be wired up and, and muffled up and skeletoned up and a little better than, than, than their peers. And over time, the designs get refined and improved and sort of optimized, but it has to be gradual. And that's how learning works too. When you're born, your brain is in some regards, sort of randomly wired. And you're babbling and rolling your hands around and your eyes don't even focus properly. And gradually, gradually, the world imposes its structure on your brain and your brain acquires information at a fantastic rate. And by the time you're two, you're beginning to talk. And by the time you're three, you've distinguish yourself from others and you can identify all kinds of things. So the, the trick to understanding the mind is first of all to understand that it's 
an evolutionary process that goes on in your material brain that starts before you're born and continues to the end of your life. Very good. So Dan, you know, many, many listeners will, will hear, viewers will, will hear what you're saying about the, um, about the explanation of, uh, let's say, these, these learning algorithms within the brain um, and think, well, that's all well and good. But that seems to be a solution to a relatively easy question, to use the philosopher's taxonomy here. There are harder questions about mind. So we can certainly talk about how a neural network adapts to various kinds of reinforcement learning, etc., and give a quote-unquote naturalistic story or a physical story about how that might happen. But if we ask, for example, as philosophers have, into, you know, let's say, the qualitative aspects of experience. Let's say my experience of the, um, the taste of the coffee, for example, this morning. Um, the way I taste the coffee seems to elude that kind of explanation. So um, we, could, we could maybe uh, um, challenge the naturalist to give an account of conscious experience, to give an account of qualitative experience that would genuinely explain the, the, what it's like for me to taste coffee or to see red, etc. And you've, you've taken a shot at that. You've taken one of the prominent. <laughs> so let's hear, let's hear your theory of consciousness, Dan. Yes, I've, I've been battling this for half a century. Yes. And, uh, uh, the big mistake that people make is that they conceive of this as an inner show in their head where they've got aromas and shades of blue and sounds. And uh, uh, I mean, it's a very powerful image. I mean, if I ask you to uh, just hear, oh, uh, hmm the Star Spangled Banner in your head, America's uh, uh, anthem or some tune that everybody knows, Oh Susanna, you can hear it and it's in a, it's in a, it's in a key and at a speed and you think there's a, a sort of a little band going in your head. Well, there isn't a little band any more than that there's a little band on a, on a DVD. You, you can have representations of sounds that don't make noise. And what happens in your brain is the representations of colors and aromas and so forth that are recognized by things in your brain that are, have been designed to recognize them. So we have to get rid of that image of the inner movie theater where it all takes place. There is no, I call that the Cartesian theater. And there is no Cartesian theater in your brain. What there are are gazillions of capturings of information by information capturers. And they feed each other and they produce a whole body, whole person illusion, which is what Sellers calls the manifest image. That's why we see colors. Okay. Now, atoms aren't colored. Yeah. Color can only be described in terms of its interaction 
with a color vision capable organism. Okay, so I, I think um, it would be interesting for our listeners to 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 uh, to uh, to maybe to understand more clearly this idea of consciousness as a kind of illusion. Um, to think about the self that's the subject of that illusion. So, yeah. I mean, if you're saying that um, my experience of the cup of coffee is, my experience of the taste of coffee is um, maybe the illusion uh, generated by systems within me that tell me I'm, I'm uh, drinking coffee um, and that there's no distinctively qualitative experience present um, our, our viewers might wonder, well, who is the subject of this illusion? Like why, why, uh, I mean, presumably, um, if, if it's an illusion, someone's subject to that illusion and they're having a coffee-like experience of the illusion. So, so maybe you could say a little bit about this self, um, the self that's subject to the illusion that you're... Well, there's all kinds of selves, mm. even a... Even a bacterium has a self of sorts. It distinguishes itself from things that are outside it that are not itself. Um, but it doesn't, that's not a conscious self, it's just a self-protective self. And a lobster has a self. It doesn't bite off its own claws. Um, it, it could, but it knows better uh, in some sense. As we, when you get to people like us, organisms like us, we have very selfie selves. We, uh, we have selves that are hugely articulated and complicated by a lifetime of experience. Who you are is summed up in the manifolds of memories and plans, hopes, expectations, fears, uh, the languages you know, the people you know, the cities you know, all of this is a store of information that is very accessible to this organism that's you. And it's that accessibility to the organism, the fact that the, the, the body, the living, breathing body that's you is very well controlled. It doesn't run into the walls and it picks up cups of coffee and it looks out windows and sees who's at the door. All of these things yeah. are capabilities of a living body. Now, some people would say, well, but maybe it's just a zombie. A philosophical zombie is, uh, I love this because it perfectly distills the mistake. Uh, some philosophers have argued at great length that they can imagine some living thing, a philosophical zombie, who is just as animated, just as averse to pain, just as good company as a conscious person, but there's nobody inside. There's no self. It's just a zombie. There's nobody home. And they say they can imagine this. And I say... No, you can't. To imagine that in a sense that would carry any weight is a huge task, and it's, you're simply incapable of it. 
I mean, I can, I can also imagine, you know, a cup of coffee that writes poetry. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it could mm. uh, or that that's logically possible. Uh, you can't get from the brute idea of a zombie to the, uh, I say, the very distinction between a zombie and a behaviorally identical conscious person is a phony, artifactual distinction that philosophers talk themselves in. Okay, so this is a really interesting, um, I mean, this is a sort of a crucial philosophical point, right? So the, the arguments for the irreducibility or um, non-physical nature, let's say, of qualitative experience depend on what you've, what you've described, which is it's, it's a traditional style of argument in philosophy called the conceivab uh, conceivability argument. So that if I can conceive of two things being separate, then, the, then that makes it the case that it's possible that they are separate. If they're possible that they're separable, then they're not necessarily identical. And the argument uh, from uh, philosophers like David Chalmers and others is that qualitative experience is not necessarily identical, therefore not identical, with the activity of the, um, the organism, with, with my body. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time on that, but it strikes me in your response that you've kind of insisted on the reality of the self. And you've said, look, this zombie thing that you're imagining as not having these qualitative experiences or not having this kind of conscious self, et cetera. You've, you've laid that out and you've claimed that there's a distinction between qualitative experience in the physical world. I challenge you to really make that distinction clear. And I, I don't believe that you can actually do that. I don't believe in the conceivability of the zombie, the, the philosophical zombie. And what I hear in that, Dan, is, is a striking commitment in some ways to the reality of the self and qualitative experience that, you know, might surprise people is that you really do believe that I exist as a person, as maybe an emergent property of this organism, etc. That, you know, it's not that Dan, Dan Dennett's been denying the existence of, of Dan Dennett over the years. It's that Dan Dennett is thinking of, the, of Dan Dennett or John Simmons as an emergent being. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious if that's, maybe, I'm wish, maybe this is wishful thinking on my part as an emergentist, but if that's true, then what kind of reality is that? <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, uh, perfect question for me. Um, what I've said over and over again, and somehow a lot of people just won't believe me, I say, yes, consciousness is real, it's just not what you think it is. Yes, free will is real, it's not what you think it is. And uh, there's this wonderful quote by my friend Lee Siegel, a philosopher and magician uh, <laughs> at the University of Hawaii, uh, who, who wrote a book on Indian street magic. And he says in, in the coda, I tell my friends I'm writing a book on magic. 
and they say real magic, by real magic, they mean thaumaturgical acts and spells and so forth. And I say, no, not real magic, card tricks, uh, sleight of hand and so forth. In other words, the real magic is the kind that isn't real. <laughs> the kind you're gonna actually do is not real magic. <laughs> and I think, right, if you think consciousness is real magic, then I'm saying that consciousness doesn't exist. But I'll tell you what consciousness is, it's a bunch of tricks. If you, if you think that free will is real magic, right, that doesn't exist. But if you want to know what does exist, and which in fact does all the work that free will does, I'll tell you. So I'm, my motto throughout all of this is, yes, these things are real, they just aren't, they don't have the properties you think they have. Mm -hmm. Qualia are not ineffable, intrinsic, qualitative states. They are richly information-holding uh, dispositional states of almost unimaginable complexity, which because it's almost unimaginable, we sort of blur in our thinking and treat it as, as a single property. As I said, if, if our vision were as grainy, as low resolution, as our smell, our sense of smell, when a bird flew by, the sky would go all birdish. We'd say, oh my gosh, the sky is birdish. And we would think, we would have a sense that there was a property of the sky, it was birdish. And it's an ineffable property, but I, I know it's birdish because we just can't see the detail. Excellent. So if we think then about these, um, about these um, selves and feelings and um, et cetera, and we want to say in some sense that, you know, these emergent phenomena, I would say, emergent phenomena, these emergent phenomena are as real as, as almost anything. They are as uh, important as almost anything, et cetera, et cetera. How do you, how would you regard, let's say, questions about, for example, value and the relationship between value and the scientific image? So one way of understanding what you've been saying is that your project has been to reconcile common sense and, this, and scientific inquiry. So our common sense experience of the world teaches us that there are people, there are selves, there is conscious experience, et cetera. Our scientific image of the world um, doesn't obviously have room for those things uh, for various reasons. And, and part of the project of philosophy in the second half of the 20th century, and you're a, an eminent representative of that, was to reconcile science and common sense. So what then do we do about value? So presumably, you know, one of the reasons we care about the reality of something like the self or consciousness is because we think it's important. So what, what do we, how, how does Dan Dennett think about, 
importance in relation to the scientific mm. image? Well, I, uh, as usual, I think about this in somewhat evolutionary and historical terms. Uh, there, there was a time when our distant ancestors didn't have language and weren't civilized. They were wild animals, like chimpanzees and orangutans and bonobos. And I won't go into details, but gradually a subset of those, our more recent ancestors, developed into hominins, into hominids, and uh, in the process developed habits that, and attitudes that were strikingly different from those of other animals. And when language arrived, the prospect of using language both to order and to obey and to promise and to condemn and to scold and to warn, to do all of these important things, this all evolved. And what I'm telling really is the story that Hobbes told uh, long ago. It's that the state of nature, life was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, and there was no morality at all. There was a kind of value, but it was only the value of staying alive. Uh, you know, if you got enough to eat and made lots of offspring, that was it. There were no other values. But once we got language and community, a new kind of value arose. Now, that doesn't make it good. It just makes it present and natural. And Hume talks about the natural virtues, love of one's offspring, um, uh, anger at uh, transgression, and so forth. And, and he says, we then enhance these when we create artificial virtues, which are sort of human-made culturally transmitted attitudes. Now, in fact, those aren't the same over the world. There's a striking difference between the sort of natural, off the top of the head value judgments that people make in uh, the, uh, the, the Western industrialized world and in the rest of the world. Uh, 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 Joseph Henrich has created a wonderful term for this weird W-E-I-R-D, which stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. The countries that have been that way for hundreds of years, not thousands, but hundreds, have a very clearly different set of naturally transmitted and ingrained and expressed attitudes to questions of morality that are not shared with a lot of people who aren't weird people like you and I. And this comes out on all sorts of scales. 
And it's where all of the controversy about ethics really, I think, is discoverable. Um, for instance, in the weird world, nepotism is regarded as, if not a crime, something to be very much scourged. In the rest of the world, nepotism is an obligation. That's clear. Family values, family ties are more important. They, they overrule objective, universalized ethical rules for many, many people. So if, ethics evolves culturally. It's changed. Old Testament ethics, uh, uh, Judeo-Christian ethics, is quite different from Islamic ethics. And the ethics of the Western world now is very different from Old Testament ethics. So it's very, it, when, if I may, Dan, I mean, one of the, one of the um, questions that immediately rises to me hearing this way of uh, your, your accounting for what we could call ethical behavior or ethical decision-making as a kind of a natural phenomenon is that our first response uh, on reflection is to try to adjudicate between these different, this, these competing conceptions of what's right and wrong. And I wonder how the naturalist thinks about the position from which we adjudicate those differences. That's a good question, yes. No, um, and, and I have an answer for it. What we have learned, and this is philosophy that has done this, is that there is a perspective from which we can sit down as informed, rational agents and ask ourselves the meta question. Okay, of these two value systems, which one is better? And that raises questions about what do you mean by better? And we can ask that question. Good. And we can imagine a, a sort of idealized parliament where every voice gets to be heard. If there's something that your people think is taboo, absolutely unforgivable, and the rest of us don't think so, you have an, an opportunity and an obligation, really, to try to convince us that you're right. But you can't use arguments from faith. You have to use arguments that will appeal to the, the common cause that brings us together in this parliament. Mm. Yeah, the question of, you know, um, the kinds of assumptions that drive that kind of claim, let's say uh, the assumption or the faith in the possibility of rational persuasion, the faith in the sort of uh, fundamental tenets of science are also um, topics we could talk a lot more about going forward. Um, 
One one question that I that I ask guests on uh, on on these conversations is um, concerns you know the future of philosophy and and um, and we're thinking about for example um, young people who might be curious about philosophy learning a little bit about philosophy and uh, not sure where to go or what to do or how to think about the, the proper task of philosophy. Um, and I ask my distinguished guests to speak to that person and tell them a little bit about what they hope for the future of philosophy and, and how they would sort of uh, encourage someone to, to embark on this, on this trip. Oh, good, yes. Um, I've thought a lot about this really. Uh, and uh, I think the the key is that philosophy is about questions. If you don't know what the best questions to ask are, you're doing philosophy. Once you figure out a good question to ask and why it's a good question to ask, then you go and you try to answer that question and you're doing history or astronomy or physics or biology or, or geology or engineering or something like that. But there are plenty of issues where we're just not sure if we're asking the right questions. That's where we're doing philosophy. And it's, there aren't any boundaries. It's, it's just a, it's a sort of shockingly open-ended, uh, there's no rules except reason, but those rules are also controversial. So, I think that every field of inquiry, whether it's literature or history or medicine or science, has at the cutting edge questions. Sometimes they're ethical questions, sometimes they're just, where do we go from here questions that they've postponed answering. And so there's philosophy to be done at the cutting edge of every field. That's why philosophy is so much fun, is because we get to deal with the questions that stump the experts in those fields. <laughs> the only way you can do that responsibly You've got to learn enough about the field so that you don't come in and just start bumbling around and misunderstanding what the project is. So my advice to young people who, who have that urge to be philosophers is you've got to be a philosopher of something. And not just a philosopher of philosophy. Pick a field or two and learn enough about them. Be an interdisciplinary expert if you can. And then your services will be sought out. Because <laughs> no, they haven't had time to figure these things out. I, I asked one of these questions to a brilliant young neuroscientist few years ago in his lab in New Jersey. And he said to me, oh, Dan, 
I don't have time to think about that. I just, I just have to run experiments all the time. So th there are those questions. And uh, another way of looking at it though too, is the reason you have to study the history of philosophy is that the history of philosophy can be viewed as the history of very, very, very smart people making mistakes, mm. asking the wrong questions. And if you don't know that history, you're going to make those mistakes because they're very tempting. Or you're going I to miss them. their, or you're going to miss their insights. Absolutely. But I love to watch scientists who, who think, hey, I don't need philosophy. And first they make Hume's mistakes, then they make Kant's mistakes, <laughs> then they make logical positivist mistakes. And <laughs> eventually you can bring them around to see that they've made mistakes and they say, well, then what is it? They said, no, you're doing philosophy. Excellent. Dan, this was an extraordinary privilege for me. And uh, as you know, I've learned a great deal from you over, over the years. And um, I think, I think it's, it's really great that you were able to share this with, with our audience today. So I thank you again for your time and um, wish you all the best. And thanks again. <laughs>